Depression, anxiety, and autoimmune symptoms after birth is not how it's supposed to be. There is a much better way, and I'm here to show you how to do just that. Hey, my friend, I'm Miranda Bauer, a mother to four kids and a biology student turned scientist obsessed with changing the world through postpartum care. Join us as we talk to mothers and the providers who serve them and getting evidence-based information that actually supports the mind, body, and soul in the years after birth. Welcome to Postpartum University. I am so excited to have this conversation with you as always. And I will tell you, you are in for a very special treat. So recently I did a six hour long intensive training over the course of two days on perinatal mental health. It was a certificate training that I offered through our pro membership for postpartum university uh, members. And it was absolutely incredible how in depth and how much knowledge there is to learn about this topic, but also how much is unknown about this topic. But I'm not going to get into that today. What I am going to get into is giving you a sneak peek into the first part of this training where we dive into the history of mental health. I'm going to, I'm telling you right now, it's going to blow your mind and it's going to reveal so much about the way our history has shaped today's world and culture and society around mental health and more specifically perinatal mental health. So stay tuned, listen in. This one is going to be a little bit longer than my normal podcast episodes, but I will tell you, you're going to walk away with your mouth dropped. It's going to be a fantastic conversation and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. We're going to go right into the history of mental health because it's going to open up a whole new understanding about medicine, mental health, and the way our society currently treats mental health, the way our mothers experience this, like what they feel like walking into a room. Like it's it's going to be mind-blowing to you, okay? So I'm going to just kind of go with the flow here and tell you about all of these different aspects. So we can trace medicine, right? And mental health back to ancient Greece and Hippocrates, right? Hippocrates was kind of like the, what's the, he, he was a doctor, but he was also very philosophical, okay? And he strongly believed that in the very beginning, mental health uh, issues were very much related to the gods and upsetting the gods. And as he started getting into more of the medicine aspect of his trade, he kind of started shifting his view about what it was like to have a mental health challenge and what it meant to have a mental health challenge. So the Greek word, word psyche has led to the Latin form of psyche, right? And it is, uh, Hippocrates was the first to actually create this word, okay, psyche, which is the separation of the mind and the body. 
So Hippocrates is is very famous for for doing this. He created the separation from the mind and body in which to study it. And he believed that the brain was responsible for all things related to thought and and the emotion and all things unseen, okay? And he started studying these behaviors, but he was studying things that were very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Visual, right? He started studying things that were, uh, that we could see, like someone being antisocial, like someone having hallucinations or something that was, you know, if someone did something that was very inappropriate in the public eye. And he started looking at more physical reasons for these health issues outside of uh, making the gods or goddesses upset. Okay. So much has come from Hippocrates in ancient Greece, right? We have the rod uh, uh, right here, the rod of Asclepius. I'm going to say this wrong, and I love Greek mythology. Uh, Asclepius, Asclepius. There's there's actually a multitude of them, um, but this is the one, and this is the god of healing and medicine. Okay, we also have the Hippocratic Oath, right? That was derived from uh, the uh, Hippocrates. The Hippocratic Oath is the oath that all medical doctors take before they are able to practice, okay? So, so much of what we know has come from this. And religion is very important in the aspect of of mental health, especially uh, in the history of, right? Hippocrates, again, believed about gods and goddesses. And that idea, that initial idea of gods and goddesses and mental health issues making gods and goddesses upset, that actually extended into Christianity. Okay. So making the making God angry uh, or uh, being possessed by demons. Okay. Or we're being punished by God. Right. Those words, those things continued throughout history. So you'll see as I move down this list of what's going on in the centuries to be very representative of this ancient Greece as well as religion in general. Now, hysteria, how many of you have heard of that word or have used that word in context? I know I have. I've used that word many times and I will never use that word again. As I now know, that hysteria is a word derived from Greek and it means womb. And it's lumped together with mental health of women. It was once believed that everything from psychosis to being somewhat unhappy, if you presented as somewhat unhappy, you were considered hysterical or to have hysteria. And it was believed that it was the womb's fault for not either being filled by a baby, which was in ancient Greece, right? It's the womb's fault not filling with a baby or it was not filled with sexual gratification and or sperm, which was ancient Egypt. So it was an empty womb. Now, in the 16th century, okay, we had two reasons for mental health. There was only two reasons, physical issues or demonic possession, okay? And this is worldwide. 
There were experimental surgeries that were done on women, particularly women in color and uh, poor women. Treatments were isolation, shackles, restraints. Uh, they would send people to jail and they would not give them proper care. Mental health concerns were uh, also associated with witchery and led to mass hangings, mass hangings, right? We know, we know about all of those. Okay, I won't get too much into that. But what we know is that there was this outcasting of individuals that really started to begin here in the 16th century. For women, hysteria was still a support word during this time. They, they still considered hysteria to be something that women could be supported with, but they were supported with these things, surgery. They were supported with sending them to isolation chambers, those kinds of things. Okay. Hysteria was very, very big. Um, and it was greatly influenced. And I think this is really important by the field of midwifery and women's health being replaced by male physicians. Okay. So during this time, right, we have, uh, we have a lot of the, the witch hunts that were, were happening. We have this replacement of women, uh, no longer being allowed or no longer seeing uh, being seen as the experts in uh, any sort of medicine field. They were greatly being replaced by these male physicians, okay? And so these male physicians were coming in to treat mental health concerns by doing these experimental surgeries on women. And when they couldn't find an actual physical problem with the womb, i.e. a diseased womb, right? which is very much a very invasive and painful procedure, they started going back to believing that it was demons and witchery. So that was a huge component of our, our history. Experimental surgeries, and we'll get in a little bit more as we go through. Uh, yes, it was going on in the womb. So clitorectomies were, were occurring. They were going in and looking at, at wombs opening up. Uh, bellies to to decide what was going on and not necessarily a cesarean, but going through the vaginal canal to look at the, um, the womb in general, even pulling out the womb, looking at the womb, killing women, killing many, many women. Okay. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a second. 18th century depression was known. Okay. So now we, now we know that depression exists and we start treating it with soap-based products because that needs to happen in order to cleanse and purify the mind. These were the beliefs, right? Hum, uh, honey, chimney soot, wood lice, vinegar, powdered lobster claw, uh, immersion, wet water immersion was also used, but it had to be sudden and unexpected, okay? And uh, so, so if someone was to be immersed in water because they had depressive symptoms, they were not to know that it was going to happen or about to happen to them. It had to be very unexpected and that would cure them from that. Obviously, probably not very effective. Uh, and again, this casting out of people for mental health concerns. So you know, anybody who had mental health concerns, I mean, just looking at these, this is not something that you ever really want to be a part of or associate with. So many people just don't say anything, right? And that plays a huge component to what we're experiencing in today's world. Okay, so here we have a 19th century 
We're in the 19th century. Now we have social isolation in the form of insane asylums. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure many of you have heard of the insane asylums, right? Uh, great horror flicks have been made of insane asylums. Electroshock became a treatment for postpartum depression in particular. Drugs and medications with severe side effects. Uh, we have isolation chambers and forced lobotomies. So a lobotomy is actually a brain surgery. Um, so they began doing these forced lobotomies. You did not have a choice. If you presented as someone who had mental health issues, um, not necessarily depression, but something that was very, um, you know, maybe it was bipolar, maybe it was psychosis um, or extreme forms of anxiety and depression, um, or you were poor or you were black. Okay, you are likely to be forced into an insane asylum uh, without choice and forced to have uh, lobotomies and invasive surgery procedures. That was actually very normal through the 1950s. Very normal. All of that forced lobotomies, all of that through the 1950s. I just want to stress that that point. Okay, so. For many of you, you might be, if you're on this call, that might be something that you remember in history. Uh, that might be something that, that happened in your lifetime or even your parents' lifetime. That's, that's now and a generation ago. Very, very real. There is a book I actually, in your workbook, I, I have given you several books it's uh, there are studies on there on the history, but I find them to be very limiting. And so I actually included a long list of actual books that you can go get, you know, at your local library, on Amazon, wherever the case may be, um, and learn about the history of mental health. Um, I put this book here, Medical Bondage, Race, Ginger and the Origins of, of American Gynecology. I think the title in itself is very provocative and speaks, unfortunately, the truth of what has happened in our world, especially related to women's health care. Okay. And there's a lot on uh, mental health history as well. So we're entering into the 20th century. Okay. We have Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud. Okay. And many of you are probably familiar with him. He's the father of psychoanalysis. He wanted to find the relationship between the conscious and the unconscious. That was his main work. And he believed hysteria, it's still a word that he used, was rooted in repressed sexual desires, mainly for the father. Okay. So being, you know, if I in uh, Freud's time was diagnosed with postpartum depression, it would be likely in his eyes that I had some repressed sexual desires for my father. He believed that women could be admitted into um, uh, mental institutions for being melancholic, insane, or a nymphomaniac. Okay, these are actual words, melancholic, insane, nymphomaniac. Okay, and they were allowed to be or forced to be put into an insane asylum or mental institutions if they did not adhere to expectations of their husbands or of society. So if society deemed them crazy or if their husband said, take this woman away, she's crazy or has hysteria, that was enough 
for a woman to be carted away into a medical mental institution. So popular cures for these unruly women who did not listen to their husbands or experience any sort of emotion whatsoever were clitorectomies and ovarectomies, okay? So the removal of the clitoris and the removal of their ovaries and or, okay? Those were very, very popular. And to, to keep in mind, at this time in the 20th century, forced lobotomies were still very common. So history of mental health, 21st century, so much has changed, yay, right? We have technology and education and science. So much has expanded as well as women's rights. Our husbands no longer have the ability to say she's hysterical, send her away. In 1917, the first diagnostic, uh, uh, the first diagnostic and statistical manual of mental health disorders, the DSM, the very first DSM was created and hysteria or any other mental health concerns were not listed in there or isolated to women only. This is huge. Okay. So the recognition that, wait a second, men can have this too. Now, a big part of this happened also when in the 16th and 17th century, when the, the witching trials, right, were, were occurring and physicians started doing those elective, well, it wasn't very elective, but they started doing those experimental surgeries on women and finding out that, wait a second, this has nothing to do with the womb, right? wait a second, that means that this might actually be something that could have happened to me as a male. So that idea had started spinning around, but it never really took foot until the 21st century, okay? And, and so this, was, this obviously is a, a really big deal. We'll learn a little bit more about the DSM here very shortly. Um, but we do have to, to note that many of the 20th century treatment protocols continued, right? Um, in the 1950s, providers started recognizing postpartum depression as a disorder, again, treated with electroshock. Valium was a, a, a big medication at the time that was to treat uh, postpartum depression and depression in women in general. Um, so as you could see, I mean, many women probably never would speak about it. It wasn't until, okay, this is huge as well. It wasn't until 1994, that postpartum depression entered the DSM, the, the book, that Diagnostic and Statistical Man Manual of Mental Health Disorders, the book that providers use to diagnose was not and did not include postpartum depression until 1994, 1994. Okay, so thankfully, many providers had already been recognizing it. Many providers were probably even treating it at that time. Okay, but we're coming out of a very deep and dark treatment protocol of Valium, electroshock, ovarectomies, clitorectomies, forced lobotomies. Okay, we're, we're coming out of that. And what we need to realize right now is that the study of maternal mental health or perinatal mental health is just beginning. Are y'all seeing that? Is this mind blowing to you as it is to me? So I really, I yes, it's mind blowing, okay? It's, <laughs> it's 
just fascinating to me that so much of our mental health, I mean, look at how far we've come. I mean, we've come leaps and bounds and that is something immensely to say. We've got to celebrate that immensely, but we also have to realize how much further we need to go. So I want to summarize this really quick because I want to stress the importance of why I'm sharing this with you. Both ancient Greece and religion have greatly shaped today's modern medicine, including the division of the mind and body. And we still operate under that division today. The goal of modern medicine is of treating disease rather than optimizing the health of the individual and the community so that they are less likely to experience disease. There's a huge difference. And we're not moving out of treating disease rather than supporting the individual and community health care so that we're less likely to experience disease. We're not coming out of that anytime soon. It is so deeply ingrained in our medical system, going back to ancient Greece. The patriarchal model of healthcare still impacts the study, understanding, and treatment of PMADs. It has been ruled by men since the 16th century. It has been completely taken over. And still to this day, the DSM-5 has 11 authors. I think this is super important to know has 11 authors, nine of which are men. There's a huge gap here. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more. I'm going to get into some, some important statistics on, on what this means, okay? Uh, and then history. Our history has created so much fear and shame and societal stigma around mental health, right? This is why there are so many uh, campaigns from the CDC, from the Psychiatric Institute of America, like all of these places have massive campaigns to help get rid of this fear and shame and so societal stigma that has been here. It's a generational fear. It is felt across cultures and more so for women, women of color and people with less privilege. Okay, and what has changed? This is huge. What has changed in the last few decades does not erase thousands of years of mistreatment. So now that we have an understanding of the history of mental health and the small history of women's mental health, let's get into the next section. I am so grateful you turned into the Postpartum University podcast. We've hoped you enjoyed this episode enough to leave us a quick review. And more importantly, I hope more than ever that you take what you've learned here, applied it to your own life and consider joining us in the Postpartum University membership. It's a private space where mothers and providers learn the real truth and the real tools needed to heal in the years postpartum. You can learn more at www postpartum you that's the letter you.com we'll see you next week